I hope that in this upcoming week that some of the words that we sang this morning will, will be with you and teaching you and reminding you, including that His mercy is more. And if you face a time this week where you stumble and fall and sin, that you would remember that His mercy is more, you would run to Him in repentance, to re- to Him in repentance, as Nick mentioned. Or if someone sins against you, that you would remember His mercy is is bigger than that offense, and that you would run to Him and ask Him to help you to forgive. I hope you... I hope you paid attention to that prayer-focused passage. And now I've said, you know, obviously when we talk about the the prayer focus, we want it to be something that as a church we're looking at just throughout the week, but the Lord is in your midst, church. He will rejoice over you. It's not saying He's in your midst, church, so rejoice in Him, which we should, and the Bible tells us to do that. But this says that God will rejoice over us. That God delights in His people. And it says He will quiet you by His love, and He will exult over you with loud singing. This is not us singing loudly to God although we are called to do that, this says God will sing loudly over us. There is no God like our God. And there is no religion in the world like what Christianity teaches. Don't ever let someone tell you all religions are the same. No religion on the face of the earth teaches that the God of that religion will sing over His people in delight. Except one, the true religion. And the Christian faith, His mercy is more. We have been talking about mercy in the church and how God has been kind to us in the church and how God has planned and designed our good in His glory through His church. And that has been what this this series has been about, and this rooted and growing, and the essential nature of the church. And we're continuing in that today, and continuing in from last week, where we were talking about unity. And I want to remind us of where we were last week, because as we move into a couple of weeks of talking about how God has empowered us to serve one another, I want to remind us where that servant's attitude comes from. And it comes from unity. And we said last week that unity is a state of being undivided, involving both oneness and harmony. It's a state of being undivided involving both oneness and harmony. And we, we said you have to look at all of this when we talk about the definition of unity. Because unity is not simply, as one of you told me this week in a text message that God spoke to them last week during the message, that unity is not just the opposite of conflict. And we tend to think that. 
As long as I'm not in conflict with anyone, I, I have unity. And that may mean then I just avoid them altogether. I don't deal with issues because then we won't, we won't have disunity. But that's, it's more than that. Unity, biblical unity is not just simply avoiding conflict, but it is also having a oneness and a harmony among the people of the church. And we talked about last week that you can't just manufacture this. It's not enough to just say, well, we're going to help people come into a church and we'll form connections in little groups based on interest or experience or life seasons. Because then we've lost the undivided nature of unity. It is both a state of being undivided while also having oneness and harmony. And if you say, that seems difficult. And the answer to that is, yes, in human terms, it's impossible. And that is why we said last week, only God can bring unity to His church. We cannot manufacture it. It's not possible for us to do that. And I said to you last week that I think sometimes when we try to aim at unity, we'll miss it because ultimately we're trying to achieve it in our own power. Where unity comes from is holiness. Unity is rooted in holiness. The more that we mature in gospel living the more that we are transformed by the knowledge of God and love for His Word, the more that we share experiences together of mission and persecution on behalf of the gospel, the more those things happen, the more that we love each other the way Christ has loved us, then the more our lives will be brought under the influence of Jesus. The more we're growing, the more our lives are being brought under the influence of Jesus by the power of the Spirit, and the more church unity will grow. So I'm not saying don't deal with conflicts. The Bible tells us to do that. But I am saying if you want to strive for unity, strive to become more like Jesus. Pray for the people in the church to become more like Jesus. Because the more we're like Jesus, the more we'll have unity. Jesus said unity and oneness comes. He wants the church to be one the way Him and the Father are one. If we're like Jesus, it's impossible to have this unity. So we strive after it to grow in Him. And where we were last week was Philippians chapter 2. And so if you have a Bible, go back there. And we're going to... We're going to look at a few things from Philippians 2 before we move to our sermon text for today. So go back to Philippians chapter 2 and look at verse 2 in Philippians 2. And Paul is writing to, to the church and he says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind and having the same love and being in full accord and of one mind. Here is the heart of a leader. Here is the heart of a biblical leader. They find their joy in the oneness of the church. That their joy comes from knowing that the church that they are helping to serve and to lead has the same mind and the same love and are in full accord. So Paul said, will you church complete my joy? By doing this, will you complete my joy by having this oneness among yourself? 
This is the same oneness Jesus prayed for. And then what Paul does is he is beginning to now describe the results of unity. That when there is unity, when there is oneness in the church, you will be able to see it. You will see it among the leaders. You will see it among the members. You will see it as the church is together. And so I want us to look at three results that come from oneness in the church. And I used a singular there in the handout, the result of oneness in the church, because just like I believe the Bible teaches us it is the fruit of the Spirit and not fruits of the Spirit, I believe this is the result, not results, but the result of oneness in the church. In other words, it's not just we pick and choose a couple of these, but that they will all be happening together as we grow in oneness. We will see an increasing concern for the well-being of others even above our own. This is an example. This is a result of unity. Look at verse 3 and 4. Paul writes in Philippians 2, 3 and 4, Church, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. So a result of oneness in the church is that we have this increased concern for the well-being of other people, especially of those in the church. And not only are we increasing in our concern for the well-being of those in our church, but we began to be more concerned about their well-being than our own. And we know this is a work of the Spirit because we know that in our nature, in our fallen human flesh, we lean towards self-promotion and self-concern. We want to be made much of. We want people to think well of us. If we serve, we want to make sure people see that we served. We would like recognition for what we've done. We have self-concern. If it comes down to us or someone else, we would prefer us. If only one can get a benefit, we would rather it be us. That is the human nature. And we act accordingly. And Paul says... If you do that, there will be division. If there is selfish ambition or conceit, then this same love and same mind and full accord that I am praying for you to have, it won't be there. So don't act that way. Don't act out of selfish ambition. Don't act out of self-promotion and self-concern. Rather, in humility, value others more than yourself. And then he says, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also the interest of others. So it's important for us to note here that this passage doesn't forbid self-care. It's not telling you that you should never think of yourself or never be concerned about yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interest. It's assumed that you'll do that. 
It's assumed you'll be concerned for yourself, but don't do just that. Rather, also look to the interest of others. And based on verse 3, that should become your predominant concern. What this passage is telling us is not to be unconcerned about yourself, but to begin to make your interest subordinate to the interest of others. Begin to be more concerned about other people than yourself. Start growing in caring more about them and their welfare than even your own. Be willing to live not in self-promotion, but in humility. Be willing to live not in self-concern, but self-sacrifice. That is what it looks like when we are growing in unity. That's how we obey a verse like Romans 12, 15, which tells us, as the people of God, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. What is the Word telling us there? If there are people among you who are joyful and celebrating, go make their joy even greater. Live with them in such a way, fellowship with them in such a way that their joy is even greater than it was. But if there are those among you who they are in a season of suffering, they're weeping, then you weep with them. Don't just give them some glib, hey, cheer up. But you may need to sit down and cry with them. You may need to sit down and mourn with them in order that that lament might bring them to hope. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. This is part of being more concerned about others than you are even yourself. If you think about it, who wants to mourn when you don't have to? Who wants to be in the middle of a good day and you have that that friend or that family member or whatever it is that you just know like they're going through a really hard time right now. Today's a really good day. And if I call them, if I answer this text, if I answer this call, they're probably going to drag me down with them. I'm just not going to deal with it today. There are times where we must mourn with those who mourn. It's showing care and concern for them above ourselves. This is a product of oneness. A second result of oneness in the church, part of this fruit of the Spirit, fruit of oneness, is an increasing willingness to set aside your rights in order to be found a servant. It is an increasing willingness, even a desire, to lay down your rights so that you may found be found a servant. So let's look at verses 5-8. through eight. Paul continues, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But He emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Paul says here to the church, have this mind among you. He's saying, adopt this attitude. Make this your own. This was the attitude of Christ. This was the mind of Christ. Take His attitude, take 
the way that he thought about things and make it your own. Adopt that same attitude. This is an argument of the greater to the lesser. Jesus existed as God before the foundations of the world. Jesus was equal to the Father. He was equal to the Father, but He submitted Himself. Even in equality, He submitted Himself to the Father and He became a man. And in doing so, He did not lose His deity. Jesus never stopped being God. But what He did was He set aside His glory and His privilege so that He might take on humanity and serve us. He laid it aside. It was His right to be God. It was His right to be glorified. And He laid aside that glory and those rights that He might take on humanity so that He might serve us. And how far did He go in serving us? Is it just a little? No, the Bible says He he served us to death. And then Paul says, but it wasn't just death, it was death on a cross. I think that may lose a little bit of its meaning to us today, but some of the contemporaries of Paul in the first century, even before Jesus was born, they they wrote about crucifixion and said that it is the most cruel and disgusting punishment possible. That a person would much rather die before they ever got to the cross than suffer on the cross. Because crucifixion was not just meant to kill someone. Crucifixion was meant to degrade them as they died. To humiliate them as they died. And Jesus served us. He laid aside His privileges. He laid aside His glory and His rights that He might take on humanity and become a servant. That He might die and not just die for us, serve us to the point of death, but serve us to the point of a degrading, humiliating death on a cross because that was the death we were supposed to die. That was our death. A degrading, humiliating death. So what does it mean for you and I today to take up our cross and follow Jesus? Because that's what He calls us to. If you want talk about salvation, what does it mean to be saved? Follow Jesus. But he says, it's not just follow me, but take up your cross and follow me. What does that mean? It means that you and I must loosen the hold that we have on what is right and what is fair to us. We can't follow Jesus and hold on to all of our rights. We can't follow Jesus and hold on primarily to what is fair to us. We have to be willing to set aside our rights so that we can be more concerned about other people and we can serve them. And that isn't to say that other people are more valuable than we are. It's not even to say that what they're going through is more important than what we're going through. It is to say, though, in that argument of the greater to the lesser, that if Christ, who was God was willing to take on this attitude for us, then who are we to not do the exact same thing in His name? If He who is God was willing to empty Himself, 
that He might serve others, then who am I to say I don't live that same life? I'm not greater than Jesus. I'm not more worthy than Jesus. Do I want to lay my rights down? Do I want to forget what is fair to me in order that I might love and serve someone else? No, not in my human nature. But the glory of Christ is that we take up our cross, we follow Him, we die to our human nature, that we might be like Him. That we might lay aside what's right for us. This would transform our lives if we could do it. It would transform our marriages if we could do it. It would transform our friendships if we could do it. It would transform our church if we could do it. And we can in His power. If we grow in Christ's likeness, we can become people willing to set aside our rights in order to be found a servant. And the third part of this result of oneness is you will see within the church an increasing trust and satisfaction in God's timing and God's plans rather than your own. An increased trust and increased satisfaction in God's timing and God's plans rather than your timing and your plans. Now, we've all been faced with this if we've been following Christ for a while. We have our hopes, we have our desires, many of them good, many of them godly. But we are in submission, sometimes voluntarily and sometimes involuntarily, to what God says. Sometimes it's the right thing, but it's the wrong time. And we have to wait on God's timing. Sometimes it's not the right thing. We have to wait for God to change our desires. Jesus humbled Himself to obey His Father. And God exalted him because of that. Look at verses 9 through 11 in Philippians 2. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, Christ, and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Just pause there. Understand there is a day coming where every single person, no matter their religion, no matter what they thought of God in this life, they will bow to the name, to the person, to the presence of Jesus. It's not a question. It will happen. Our eternity is dependent upon whether or not we bow to Him in this life. Everyone will bow to Him when they see Him. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we would expect that. Jesus humbled Himself. He was God. He humbled Himself. And His Father, God exalted Him. We would expect that. But what is amazing is that when you read Scriptures, you find that God says He will do the same for His people. 1 Peter 5.6 instructs the church, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. So church, humble yourself. Humble your plans. Humble your desires. Humble your timing under the mighty hand of God. That's what the Bible says. So that, here is the expected result, 
at the proper time, God will lift you up. He may do it in this life. He will certainly do it in the next. But He will lift you up. He will promote you when He's ready. He will give you the position when He's ready. He will give you the reconciliation when He's ready. He will give you the peace. He will do that work in His timing. He will exalt you. And you say, but, but I'm worried about it now. I'm fearful about it now. I'm concerned about it now. And Peter says, yes, so cast your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. How is it really possible to be more concerned about someone else's situation than your own? How can you really, truly be concerned about someone else's deal more than your own deal? And it can only happen if you trust God with your deal. It can only happen if you trust God with your situation. Because that's what allows you to say that. God, I know what my rights are, what I feel like is fair. I'm going to set that aside for this other person. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to trust you with my rights. I'm going to trust you with what's fair to me. And I'm going to trust that in your timing, you will exalt me. You will lift me up. You will do what needs to be done. And a result of oneness is becoming more satisfied in letting God do what He is going to do when He's going to do it. And realizing when you get there, it was far better than what you would have done. Far better. I I have desired deep yearning to pastor a church for 15 years. The more I do it, the more I walk in what God has allowed me to do in the timing that He allowed me to, the more I realize I would have really messed things up 15 years ago. I was not ready. I thought I was. I only have the ability to look back now and say, you were foolish. You're foolish now, but you were really foolish then. The more we grow to be like Jesus, the more we will be satisfied in God doing what He will do when He does it. The more we grow in Jesus, the more we grow to be like Him, which is what we're talking about, being rooted in Christ that we may grow up and grow out in Him. The more we grow to be like Jesus, the more unity will grow in the church and the more this oneness, this mutual caring for each other will also grow. And I want you to see one more thing in Philippians 2. Look at verse 19, 20, and 21. I want you to see how closely Jesus ties our care for one another to our care for Him. He says in verses 19 through 21, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all, the others, seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Paul compares Timothy to other servants, to those who do things out of self-promotion and self-concern, even in ministry. They're serving, they're leading, but they're doing so more for themselves, 
more for their own promotion, their own glory, more for their own well-being and what they can get out of it. And Paul says, but I don't have anybody like Timothy. Timothy. Timothy seeks the interest of Jesus. Timothy cares about Jesus and what Jesus cares about. And what does Paul say is the interest of Jesus? To be genuinely concerned for the welfare of the church. I have no one like Him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interest, but not the interest of Jesus. The interest of Jesus is the welfare of His church. To be concerned for its welfare. You remember that conversation Jesus had with Peter? And He asked him a few times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter would say, yes. And then Jesus would say, then take care of my church. Tend my flock. Feed my people. If you love me, that's what you will do. First John chapter 4. Verse 21, this commandment we have from Him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Jesus' ties our care for one another to our care for Him. You cannot say, I love Jesus, I just don't care for His people. He says, then you don't really love me. The care we have for one another is directly tied to the care that we have for Him. Agape. Could it be said of us, could we live in such a way, could we pray in such a way, could we strive in such a way that could be said of us that maybe everybody else looks after their own interest, but we are people that look after the interest of Jesus. We care about the interest of Jesus. We care about the welfare of His church and the welfare of His people. You and I can't save anyone. Most of the time, we can't even solve people's problems. Here's the one thing we can do. We can serve. We can't save them. We can't solve their issues, but we can serve them. And that's what the Bible calls us to. Grow more and more like Jesus, becoming one who will set aside your rights to serve, becoming one who will trust God with your own interests so you can seek after the interest of others. This is God's design for us. And He's so serious about it. He so cares about us serving one another that He has taken the step to empower us to be servants. He hasn't just said, all right, go serve. He has said, I'm going to supernaturally empower you so that you can effectively serve one another. So let's go to our sermon text, 1 Peter chapter 4, that Nick read for us a moment ago. 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter is exhorting the church. We talked about that a few weeks ago, right? Exhortation. He's exhorting the church. That's what's happening here. And he gives weight to his words. He gives weight to his exhortation by saying in verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. What he is saying there is, is, church, the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Christ, that's happened. The subsequent outpouring of the Holy Spirit, that has happened. And that was the culmination of the salvation plan. For what God has been doing from the beginning of creation to now, He has completed. 
And therefore, from this point, all believers can understand that they can look for the return of Christ. That they can look for the return of Jesus. And they look, we look for the return of Jesus. Not, not just with eyes to heaven. We don't just stand and stare and wait. Although it is good to look up. It is good to look for the return of Christ. But we're not to just stand and stare and wait. We are to be faithfully doing His mission. And that is part of how we wait. That is part of how we look for His returns. We do that which He has given us to do. So there are three exhortations that Peter gives here to the end-time church, which we are a part of. The end-time is described in Scripture from the moment Jesus ascended and the church was formed until now. And here are three exhortations to the end-time church. Number one, be serious and be watchful in your prayers. Be serious and watchful in your prayers. So what he says in verse 7 is the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. The New King James Version translates that, be serious and watchful as you pray or in your prayers. This was our prayer focus last week. I hope you recognize that. We were praying last week that Jesus would help us as a church to watch and pray. To be watchful in prayer. One of the reasons we pray is so we can be spiritually watchful over our lives. One of the reasons we pray is so we can be spiritually watchful over our families. One of the reasons we pray is so we can be spiritually watchful over our church. We Watch in prayer. We watch over ourselves and others through serious prayer, through deeper prayer. We should grow in prayer the way we grow in everything else. Yes, prayer, part of it is laying your request before the Lord, but it is far more than that. Yes, it is being thankful to God and praying prayers of thanksgiving. And yes, it is being watchful. We watch as we talk to God and He talks to us. The second exhortation to the end times church is that they should keep intense your love toward one another. And I wrote that specifically that way. The language is a little different. But we should keep intense our love for one another. We should keep our love for one another at an intense level. So look at verses 8 and 9. Above all, notice he says that, above all, literally meaning before all things. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now, He says, church, do this before you do anything else. Now, he is not saying there, I believe, that this love that we have for each other supersedes our love for God. We we know the first commandment, love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second commandment is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself, which Jesus later makes a 
alteration to that to say, love others as I have loved you, as I have shown you how to love. But the reason I think Peter can say, do this above all things, is we've already seen that one of the ways we exercise love for God is by caring for His people. So, above any other interest in the church, above any other care or concern that you have for what's happening in the church, be concerned to keep your love for one another earnest. And certainly that's only going to happen if we keep our love for God earnest. The language that he uses infers that the church is already loving one another. And I would say that about agape. I would say we love each other here. But we don't get to say, yes, we're a loving church. What do we need to move on to? The imagery is that you're already loving one another, but you need to make sure you keep that love intense. Picture if you've ever built a fire, right? The fire is roaring. There's, it's, it's big. There's heat coming from it. Like it is a good fire, but you know what will happen if you simply walk away. You know what will happen if you sit in your camping chair and you don't touch it again. Eventually it will go out. In order for that fire to stay intense, you have to be ready to throw wood on it. You have to be ready to poke and prod. Some of us would use lighter fluid or something like that, right? Something real quick and easy. That's dangerous, by the way. Don't do that. But the point is, we have to work to keep it intense. We have to work to keep it built up. And that's what Peter's saying here. You're loving each other, but you need to keep an intensity in your love for each other, and that's not going to happen unless you work at it. That's not going to happen unless you are willing to invest in one another and care for one another and serve one another. And then look at what what he says. Here's his reasoning. Here's why you need to keep this love intense, because love covers a multitude of sins. Here's what I think he's saying. You need an intense love because you are going to sin against one another. You need an intense love because you're going to offend one another. Sin is going to creep in. It's going to happen And you better be prepared to deal with it. And here's how you deal with it. Keep your love earnest. This love covers a multitude of sins is likely from Proverbs 10.12. James says something similar. But Proverbs 10.12 says, Hatred stirs up strife. Love covers all offenses. Proverbs makes a comparison. And it's one that we need to heed. There are those who will bring up old grudges over and over and over again. There are those who will hold on to offenses and refuse to let go. There are those who will hold on to conflict and refuse to be at peace. And just when you think it's been dealt with or just when you think it's over, they find a way to bring it back up again. They find a way to stir that strife back up, that dissension back up. And Proverbs says that's a form of hatred. doesn't matter if you do it under the guise of what's right and fair or what's good or you put some godly wording over it. It is a form of hatred. But here's what love is. 
Love is taking an offense and covering it with something else so that it's concealed. It's taking something that's offensive to you and it's covering it up with something else so that it's concealed. This is not, I want us to understand, this is not a call to pretend a problem didn't happen or a difficulty didn't happen. Because that is just a recipe for bitterness. That's just a recipe for, I'm going to hold everything in and and I'm going to become bitter over it. That's not what this is saying. This is not a call to pretend it didn't happen, but this is a knowing we would offend one another. And Peter is calling us to be willing to frequently overlook offenses and quickly forgive when they happen. Sometimes the way you deal with an offense is you let it go. You overlook it. Sometimes the way you deal with an offense is you need to address it with someone. But you address it with someone for the purpose of forgiving. We, church, need to be reminded we are not allowed to be unforgiving. We are not allowed to stay in disunity. It doesn't matter what they've done. We are called to forgive and to deal with it. Because God has forgiven us. And one way, or one reason that we need to have this intense love is so we can overlook offenses and forgive. And one way that we keep this love intense is what it says in verse 9, is we, we're hospitable to one another. Literally, this means we welcome each other. And we do so without grumbling. Being hospitable and welcoming people into your home but complaining about it all before they get there and all after they leave kind of ruins the moment in a biblical sense. Be hospitable. This was really, really important in the first century because there wasn't Motel 6s like we have today. There were inns, there were public housing, but they were often dangerous, sometimes full of temptations for Christians. So the expectation was if a Christian came into a town they were traveling through, other Christians would open their homes to them. So it was important for Christians to be hospitable and to do so without mention of what it cost. I want to remind you of something before we move to this last exhortation. Last year... Around this time, a little bit before then, way before we knew what 2020 was going to look like, I stood here during some vision casting messages called Building Up, and I challenged you with quite a few things. And one of the things that I challenged you with was over the course of the next 12 months to invite three families from the church that you do not know very well into your home for the purpose of just being together, fellowship, meal, or what have you. And then right after that, we all got sent to our houses and told we were in timeout, don't come out. I don't think God was surprised by that. I still believe we should do it. So I'm going to lay the challenge back before you. And you, you, you would say, well, the pandemic's still going on. I, I understand that. Some of, some of us, honestly, we left the pandemic about six months ago. I get that. Some of us, we're still kind of addressing it. That was all a joke. Anyway, the, the point is that wherever we are, 
2021 is ahead of us. And when we, when we get to that place where God has given us that peace or we can stretch ourselves to that point, I still put the challenge before you. Find three families in this church you don't know very well and get together with them. And, and you know, if, if, if you're not ready to have people in your house, meet up at a park, social distance and have lunch, whatever it is. But we should reach out to those that we don't know very well. It's part of how we show hospitality. The third exhortation that we, the end times church is given is minister to the church with the divine ability in which God has empowered you. End time church, minister to one another with the divine ability, or you can put abilities that God has empowered you or in which God has empowered you. So look at verse 10 and 11. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's varied grace, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, because to Him belongs glory and dominion forever and ever. We're going to... Look at this deeper next week. But we are likely very familiar with the term spiritual gifts, which is actually a phrase that doesn't exactly appear in Scripture. But it is appropriate to use if you look at the language the Bible does use. Here in 1 Peter, he calls them a gift, a charisma, a divine ability, a divine endowment. And what I want us to do, we're going to go deeper in this next week, but I want to look quickly at six things Peter says about these divine abilities. And these are going to go kind of quick. First, you have one. You have received a gift. Each true believer has at least one divine gift, one divine ability. You may have more than one, or over time God may grant them. It's not really clear exactly when the gifts come. Maybe at salvation, maybe at uh, the uh, a commissioning, or as you go in your walk, but everyone has a gift. We're told in 1 Corinthians 12 that the Holy Spirit distributes these gifts as He wills. Second, they are diverse in nature. They are varied. Not everyone has the same gift. There's a variety of gifts, and every gift is equally important. Third, they are sourced in God's graciousness to His people. Literally, these gifts are gifts of grace. They are a manifestation of God's grace in your life. That is what these gifts are. And fourth, the purpose of the gift is to serve the church. They are given to you not for yourself. They are given to you for others, for the church. In Corinthians, it talks about they're given to build the church up. The ability you have that you have been given by God in salvation is not to be hoarded. It is not to sit on a shelf. It is not to be buried. It is to be faithfully used as a means of keeping intense your love for the church and building other people up. Is the church essential? Yes. Is the gathering of believers essential? Yes, because your gifts are pointless in an individualistic Christianity lifestyle. 
If you live as an individual Christian separated from everyone else, then the gift God gave you is pointless. Because it wasn't for you, it was for the people that you're in community with. He actually uses the word steward, which means manager. We think of stewardship, we think usually of financial resources. God has given us finances, we manage it well. Here, God has given us divine gifts, we are to manage them well. Fifth, as you rely on the Holy Spirit to receive your gift, you are to rely on the Holy Spirit to exercise your gift. Peter actually generally separates the gifts into speaking gifts and serving gifts. And he says if you speak, if your gift is a gift of speaking, preaching, teaching, exhortation, that you should approach that gift understanding it is sourced in God's power. If God doesn't empower it, there's nothing there. You don't speak just naturally. You don't exhort just naturally. It only bears fruit if He's in it. So you should seek to use that gift of speaking directly under His guidance or under His direct guidance. And if you serve, if you have a gift of hospitality, if you have a gift of generosity where you give, then you're to use those gifts welcoming people or giving to people as a conduit of God's kindness. It's not you doing it. You you aren't the hospitable one or the generous one. It's God who is giving. It is God who's showing hospitality through you. God supplies. He has the sufficiency, not you. And there should be a way in which you operate in your gifts, in those abilities that reflects that it's about Him and it's from Him, and that it's not in you and it's not in your power. And then sixth, you are to exercise this gift so that in everything God is glorified. You should use your gift in such a way that God gets the glory for it. Not you, but Him. So we'll talk more about this next week. God has given you divine abilities to not use them. To not use the gifts that He has given you is to deny one of the ways that God intends to be glorified in your life. He has given you a gift that you might glorify Him. And to not use that gift means you're denying one of the ways that He intends for you to glorify Eli, you can come up. We're going to end today in worship and prayer. But I want to, as we, as we move to pray together and to sing again, and as Rob said earlier, this is not, this is not just the, the, the thing we do right before we dismiss. This is important. We want to respond to God's Word. But I want to point you back to Psalm 18 in our first reading for just a moment as we prepare to pray together and to worship in song one last time. In that first reading this morning in Psalm 18, I want to call your attention to verse 35. I kind of separated it out in the reading. David says to God, You have given me the shield of your salvation, and your right hand supported me. Look at this. And your gentleness made me great. Gentleness means humility. It means meekness. It was the gentleness of God toward a sinful man that gave David greatness. Greatness means increase. 
David experienced and learned God's gentleness. He received God's gentleness and he learned how to be gentle, humble, and meek like God was through times of prosperity and times of difficulty, through both. But I want you to look at that passage and realize you can't read that and not think of Jesus. Jesus is our shield as He became our salvation. Jesus is at the right hand of God, even right now, and the Word says He lives to make intercession for us. He's praying for us. Even right now, Jesus is praying for us. And it was the gentleness of Christ, it was His humility on the cross that gives us greatness, that gives us increase. Not a worldly type of greatness. Not a prideful, self-sufficient greatness that leads us to consider ourselves more than others, but the greatness of being like Him. It is the gentleness of Christ that makes us like Christ. We learn humility. We learn self-sacrifice. Jesus teaches us those things. He teaches us those things in easy seasons and in hard seasons. We learn humility and we learn self-sacrifice. And through us, Jesus now brings increase to others. And to ensure that through us, others can receive an increase, He has granted us divine abilities. So what I want to lay before you this morning is first of all, Has the humility of Jesus made you great? Have you become a follower of Christ? Have you had that moment, that time in your life, not where you joined a church or you prayed a prayer, but have you come to a place in your heart where you said, I need to be like Jesus. I'm going to follow Jesus. And if not, I believe He's brought you here today that you might do that. He's put you on this live stream that you might do that. Secondly, what are you doing if you are following Him with the gifts He's given you? What are you doing with those spiritual endowments that He's given you? Are you using them to build the church up? Are you using them to glorify Him? Or is there something that has grabbed your attention more than that? More than the welfare of the church? I want you to ponder those things this morning as we pray, as we worship. If you are in this room or if you're on live stream and you are unsure of your relationship with Christ, please do not leave here today without talking to someone about that. Find me after the service. You can talk to Nick. If you come talk to me, I'll get your contact information. We'll talk later tonight or this week. If you're on the live stream, you can text... The number, Nick will put it in the chat. It's in the handout as well. You can text that number. It'll come to us. If you hear His voice, if you hear His calling, answer. Respond.